folks, and welcome to This Is Who We Are. I'm Sean Watkins. This is my podcast and my new album, all rolled into one. Each episode features one song off the record paired up with a conversation with a guest who is related to that song in some way. And that's the main point. Each guest is either loosely or sometimes directly related to the song in one way or another. The goal is just to use this album as sort of a topical springboard for me and my guests. And from there, we can go anywhere. My guest on this episode is sort of a musical Forrest Gump, for lack of a better description. He's just been everywhere and and a part of so many monumental historical musical moments. He started his musical career as half of Peter and Gordon, which was a British invasion era duo. Uh, You may have heard their song World Without Love. They had a bunch of other great hits as well. After that, he headed up A&R at the Beatles record company Apple, where he signed James Taylor, produced his first record, which wasn't a huge hit, but then went on to produce four more records for him, including Sweet Baby James, JT, Mudslide Slim, and Flag. He also managed and produced Linda Ronstadt in the 70s. Some of the records he did with her are Heart Like a Wheel, Living in the USA, in 1973, he, alongside David Geffen and Elliot Roberts, opened up the Roxy, which is now a legendary club here in Los Angeles. Some of the other people he's worked with, production-wise, are Cher, Natalie Merchant, Neil Diamond, J.D. Salver, Robin Williams, Bonnie Raitt, Randy Newman, Diana Ross, and more recently, Steve Martin and Edie Burkell's duo record, which uh, I actually played on. Some other interesting tidbits about him, um, he was vice president of Sony Music Entertainment from 95 to 2002. He's a member of Mensa, which is the club for super smart people, like the top 2% IQ. He's currently the host of a hit radio show on Sirius XM uh, called From Me To You, where he plays Beatles songs and tells stories. It's really, really great. And um, I didn't get to ask him about this, but Mike Myers has apparently said that he patterned his Austin Powers character after Asher's appearance in the 60s. <laughs> I can't say that with 100% accuracy because I forgot to ask him, but give it a quick Google image search and you'll see what I mean. It's pretty great. The song for this episode is called Peninsula, and it was written by Simon Chrisman, who is the hammer dulcimer player in the Bee Eaters, the band I made this record with. There are two instrumentals on this album. And uh, instrumentals don't lend themselves too well to conversation topics, I realize. (laughs) But uh, one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to Peter uh, with regard to this is because I always have loved the way he incorporates sometimes very complex and intricate instrumentation into his productions, into pop songs. Um, And that's not an easy thing to do without distracting in any way from the lead vocal. But he does it masterfully and... I just admire him so much for that. We talk a little bit about it. The song Peninsula is very long. It's eight minutes. So I'm just going to play a segment of it. And then we will dive into my chat with Peter. He starts off talking about the different ways he approached producing James Taylor versus Linda Ronstadt. And then we launch into it from there. He tells some incredible stories. After my chat with him, I will play the entirety of the song Peninsula. All eight glorious minutes of it. But first, here's just a small segment of the song Peninsula, followed by my chat with the legendary one and only Peter Asher. 
there are a lot of people and a lot of producers who who will sort of surround a singer and a songwriter with with not much and and sort of just let the song sort of be what it is and that's and that's really great and that's a one way to do it but I love that you never seem to miss an opportunity to make a song more interesting but without distracting from the vocal at all it's it's, it's like a magic trick to me you know was that something that you consciously went for yes you tried to tried to do yes uh, in other words i've always tried i've seen the producer's job or the arranger's job you know and in, in, in many cases with these kind of records the producer and the arranger are the same person and the musicians yeah. um to frame the song you know not not to overwhelm the song not to overwhelm the vocal so uh i mean both with with the, the that era going back to that time when I did Hot Like a Wheel and stuff, yeah, and you're no good. Both with the James Taylor records I was doing and the Linda records, that was what it was all about. Mm-hmm. In James's case, it was about the vocal, the song, and the guitar. Right. In Linda's case, it was about the brilliance of her singing. Yeah. You know, and the and the song. Yeah. And obviously, it was the song we both liked, um, but we also both realized that there was a way to make to make Linda own it even more than she does every time she opens her mouth. Yeah. Owns every note she sings. Yeah. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I, I at the time when I when I was listening to, and I know this for you is it's 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 so long ago, but for me, like what my one of my main first interests, like entrances into pop music was was Linda Ronstadt and all the, like the Heart Like a Wheel, all that stuff was my favorite, and um, and then a lot of James Taylor because that's what my mom was into Beach Boys, Beatles. And I didn't really listen to any of the pop music that was happening, like uh, you know, in the late '80s, early '90s, when I was kind of <laughs> coming into it. So a lot of this stuff is my kind of, you know, my original reference for um, for what you could do with popular music and instrumentation. Um, I have a couple other questions. Well, I, when you were when you were making just while we're on that, when you were making Heart Like a Wheel, did you feel like did you feel like all you mind the talking or just? Um, Maybe you don't mind, but it's probably okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> it's on When you were making that record, did you did you re- realize that like all those songs were were so epic and so great? Did you did you feel well? Like- in, in, in some of them were, were were songs that we knew and loved already. You know, uh-huh. I mean, I'm trying to think what the balance was on Heart Like a Wheel between old songs and new songs, but it was both. You know, mm-hmm. and of course with Linda's hits, we had a series of hits with covers. You know, of yeah. of, of records we both loved, and it, it was. In, generally speaking, there were, you know, songs that we both suggested. There, there was a tendency, I think, back then, particularly, it was some, you know, part of a, a whole fact of life at that time, of course, that there would be a, people assuming incorrectly that it was me choosing the songs and telling Linda what to sing. Right. Uh, which, because it was an era in which, you know, don't you worry, you pretty little head about that, was, right. a, was a phrase you were allowed to use. Right, know, so, right. Um, and it was completely not the case. You know, Linda, you know Linda, and she's you know one of the cleverest people and most brilliant singers I know in the mm-hmm. whole world so there's no question but that she had lots multiple ideas herself if if we had to divide it it would be largely I think that I would tend to lean towards thinking of a rock and roll song she might sing well mm-hmm. and she would lean towards a ballad that she might sing well she right. on balance she doesn't like singing mm-hmm. rock and roll that much right. as, as great as she is at it you know yeah. in my view but You're No Good, for example, was a song that she had done in her act at one, at one point and was a song we both knew and loved. I'd actually first heard that song in the Swinging Blue Jeans version. I don't know if you're aware that right. in, the, in, the, in the so-called British Invasion period, 
you know, what, the first version I heard in London was the Swinging Blue Jeans. At that time, as you know, all the English bands were finding American songs to right. do, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, this is a whole other subject, but of course the, the weirdest part about the whole British invasion was based solely on American music. Mm-hmm. You know, before the Beatles started writing songs, they never sang an English song, to my knowledge, wow. ever, wow. if you think about it. Wow. Uh, so it was all about... We were all tribute bands, you know. We were doing Everly Brothers songs. <laughs> they were doing, you know, Miracle songs and right. and Isley Brothers songs, and mm-hmm. you know, and the Stones were doing Chuck Berry songs and Arthur Alexander songs and right. Bo Diddley songs. So it's kind of weird. It's but, also interesting. So we, you know, I I knew a lot of these songs that Linda knew. Yeah. And the funny part is, I knew them from England. And in the case of You're No Good, it so happened, I had not heard the Betty Everett original. But the Swinging Blue Jeans, they had like a number one record or close to it mm-hmm. with that song. And I knew that one. I loved the song. Mm-hmm. Then by the time I came to America, I'd learned both versions. Right, and right. So that's why making a version with Linda was challenging because I wanted, I knew I was up against two really good records in my view. Right. But n- neither of them was n- nearly as much of a hit as the, as the Linda version ended up being. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought you know, Linda, I think, did a great version. And, of course, in any discussion of You're No Good, we cannot forget the genius of Andrew Gold. Who, yeah, I was going to... Who contributed gonna, massively. When you, when, when you did uh, our... Uh, you've done I, at least one, I think maybe... I don't know if you've done two fam- of our shows at yes. Largo, Family Hours, mm. but um, mm. at one point you were talking about um, uh, Andrew Gold and, um, and how much of a... Uh, impact and, and um, part of those recordings that he was but on that uh, on that song in particular the 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 things and I remember when when I first met you Sarah and I met you through uh, through Lyle Lovett um, mm. I mean I think it That's was right, at, at the the Wiltern I think you came and, and sang with him I sang a Buddy Holly song with Lyle yeah. yes yes and um, I had uh, Sarah and I had just been in a play with him and uh, a Shakespeare play for a, a, a a few weeks and so he had invited us to the show and we met you and him and um and i remember telling <clears throat> telling sarah that you were going to be there and i was like and, and he, he he produced you're no good and sarah was like holy shit i i have to ask him about how he recorded you know how did that happen and i know you've probably told the story a million times but will you t- talk about again the way that, that that particular um recording went down with with him sure um we tried the. We tried a basic track a couple of different ways. We were using uh, some of Linda's live band at the time, a guitar mm-hmm. player called Ed Black, mm-hmm. and I forget who the drummer was at that point. And I, it, 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 it wasn't killing. It wasn't quite doing it. And mm-hmm. and so I ended up trying to, deciding to largely build it up from the ground up. Mm-hmm. I had an idea of how to make a. In a way, a slightly sort of more like modern pop now version. Yeah. Where, you know, instead of a bunch of people noodling together, mm-hmm. very, very defined yeah, parts. parts. Yeah. And, and arranged very precisely. So we actually started with the drums, I think, on their own. Mm-hmm. Though we might have done a version with a couple of guitar players until we knew where we were. Yeah. But Andrew Gold played the drums. Yeah. Um, and we worked out a very specific uh, drum part. And... And all that guckadoo, guckadoo, every fill was designed in a way that Andrew loves to do and I love to do. And Mm -hmm. of course, Ringo made his trademark. Every fill sounds like it was written rather than just spontaneously played. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so we did that in in, 
and then and the key parts at that point were the drums and the uh, Wurlitzer part. I yeah. think it was a Wurlitzer, not a Rhodes. As yeah. I and the bling dong, bling dong, that mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, we did leave whatever it is, eight or sixteen bars in the middle, completely blank. Yeah. Figuring we're going to come up with something brilliant to go there. Yeah. Later. Yeah. We really didn't know what it was and what what it was going to be, and then. I know Ed Black, for example, is on the record. He played some guitar licks that he'd been doing live mm-hmm. that fit in perfectly. But all the other... And Kenny Edwards played the bass. But all the other guitars are all Andrew. Yeah. And, you know, Andrew's an extraordinary person. Oddly enough, I've just been asked to write a, some sleeve notes for Andrew. They're re-releasing some stuff, and they said, will you write a piece about mm-hmm. the genius of Andrew Gold? So I've just been thinking about him this morning um, I haven't started writing it yet mm-hmm. and, but I mean he's such an interesting was such an interesting and amazing musician his talent as you know genetically speaking is no surprise you, you know you know about his parents no oh good lord well, it's, it's an it's the it's an you know a, a living example of you know it, it's all in the genes mm-hmm. his his father was Ernest Gold who wrote a bunch of uh, Film scores and wrote Exodus, wow. for example, the song you know, which is brilliant and mm-hmm. and was multiple Oscar, Grammy, whatever. And his mother was Marnie Nixon. Do you know who Marnie Nixon was? We all need to know who Marnie Nixon. Okay. She's one of the most. I think, I think, and hope she she might be still alive, or maybe she just died recently. I hope she is. Um, she is the <clears throat> woman who sang secretly. And contractually forbidden to reveal the fact that it's now a fact. Natalie Wood in My Fair Lady, or I mean, sorry, Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, wow. Natalie Wood in West Side Story, wow. and uh, what's the name in The King and I? Who was that? Oh, anyway, oh. all those movie stars uh-huh. were sung no by Money Nixon, and she's the, one of the most versatile, extraordinary. Sopranos in the history of the world and has a huge fan following and it was a whole bizarre story beyond the scope of this immediate interview but not only was this was she bound to silence contractually back in the day but those stars were all bound to lie and say that wow. they that they sang wow um, and they wanted to own you know and in some cases, like Natalie Wood's a pretty good singer, apparently, but mm-hmm. not as good as Marnie Nixon. Mm-hmm. And Marnie Nixon has this unique ability to sing in someone's speaking voice. So wow. no one ever knew that it wasn't until finally so many decades passed that it became well known. Did she say she sang for Audrey, Audrey Hepburn? Audrey Hepburn. Wow. Audrey Hepburn, My Fair Lady, um, what did I say? Uh, uh, Natalie, Natalie Wood, in, Wood in West Side Story. Yeah. And whoever it was in uh, the King and King I, King and I, yeah, um, wow, those were all her, and they all sound different. Wow. So, so that's his. So mom. that's that's his mother. Wow. His father's yeah. Ernest Gold, a genius film composer who wrote Exodus, which was a huge mm-hmm. hit song, and uh, so no surprise. Wow. And Andrew was not formally trained at all, um, not a literate musician, but one of those people with the almost McCartney-esque ability to pick up any instrument and and play it. Yeah, you know, yeah. he could play everything and. Uh, so that song was just you so anyway, and him, right? So was, we, we started, we, we, yes, it was me and him and and Kenny playing bass, Ed Black playing some guitar licks. Right. So there were other people on it. But the essence of it and the and the whole guitar festival in the middle and the end <laughs> yeah. was me and Andrew.
Yeah. I mean, Andrew played everything. Yeah. But we would sit and try out ideas uh-huh. and sounds. You know, we were trying direct and amps and weird gizmos and yeah know, it was and did you tell me that the uh, that the, was an all night the guitar the electric guitar ended up being direct into the board well both um the ding 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 those yeah. arpeggio things they're yeah. all direct yeah that was a a strat direct oh that's so good and but we one of them we used this weird emt reverb thing that was broken and had mm-hmm. a sort of hiccup in it wow. which sounded brilliant wow um, so you kind of go, what's that cool thing? And they go, oh, it's broken. Ooh, that's, what's it yeah. do? Does it work at all? And it sounded great. Um, and that was just, yes, Andrew, me, and the engineer, Val Garay. Uh-huh. Um, up all night. Um, Where did you record in, that? Was uh, that in? Sunset Sound. Okay. No, wow. no, sorry, no, no. Um, what's it called? The Sound Factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> just so cool. I was, I was talking to... Um, because Linda left after a bit. And, right. Uh, you know, um, what decade was that? Was that 70s or whatever? 74? Yeah, so mid-70s. And yeah, yeah, so we were very much up all night. And oh. and, and Linda, Linda wasn't. She was much more sensible. Right. And she went home. And, and, uh, but, um, and she I, came back, like, you know, noon the next day or something. Yeah. At least that's my recollection. She thinks it was a day later, but... I think it was the same day, and we were, you know, yeah. all glossy and all <laughs> horrible, you know, as, as one did, was. <laughs> what did she? And, what and did she think of it? She didn't like it. She didn't like it. No, she didn't like it. Um, she she just was kind of, I don't know, you know, yeah. it sounds like the Beatles, and, uh, and, I, <laughs> and we kind of went, well, it does sound like the Beatles. <laughs> we think that's cool, <laughs> and uh, and we actually tried some alternate guitar solos mm-hmm. on it. Some more normal improvised guitar solos, yeah. and then she totally came around to it. And said, You're, yeah, it's it's so funny because yeah, I just, and it was it's multiple layers. You know? Yeah, we would say, keep that. Now let's try. <laughs> that's yeah, that's so. And then I put strings on it um, in London um, right. later because I had a very depth. The string line at the end, you know, there's that crescendo, very sneaky thing. high. Yeah, do 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 Yeah, you know. I knew I wanted that. And then once we were putting them on, we put other stuff on. And that was, they were written by um, a friend of my sister's, actually, my younger sister, who was a, the best musician in the family, were most trained, anyway. And he uh, was a friend of hers who she'd met at, at Oxford, I think. She was an organ scholar at Oxford. And, and uh, he, he wrote out the string lines for me. We did those in London. But it all sort of fitted together. Did you tell him just kind of a vision of a general vision of what you wanted? That line I sang. Yeah, I that exactly line. It's so powerful. Like it, it just kind of, it just starts so quiet, and then yeah. then by the by the time you hear it, it's just it's, there, and then Adam it gets from, loud. Yeah, it's super piano to yeah. as forte as they could get. And then as soon and as it stops, bing, bing, bing. Yeah, so it's just so perfect. Well, thank you. I remember talking to. No, we were we were pleased with ourselves. We we kind of knew, you know, we kind of going. You know, if, yeah. if this isn't a hit record, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quitting the business. 
I uh, I was talking to John Bryan years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you know do you know John? Yes, yeah. not well, but of course I know uh, he is. We uh, I great he, admire we were talking his. about uh, you know every now and then we'll have a, a late night where we just talk about uh, mm-hmm. you know, usually after a show at Largo and we'll just, just talk music and at one point th- this uh, um, this you know the outro to you know good came up mm. and he said something to the effect of like. He was like, "That's all I want to do in music is that outro is what." That's like, <laughs> he was like, "That's my that's that's what I want to aspire. I aspire to that." Oh, great! And, and um, but yeah, I mean, you have so many so many musical moments. That's just that's just one that as a kid as a kid that was one that that um. It stuck with me, and I didn't even really you know I was like nine, ten, eleven years old. I didn't really I wasn't into. Uh, that kind of music at all, and Linda Ronstadt was was not like uh, you know it's not like something kids listen to. No. Um, and so, it, but it but it definitely stuck with me and and has stuck with me, and, it, and it's 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 made me realize that like you can. I love that people are trying to still trying to. Um, well, that that it's possible to strike that balance between the singer and the song and the instrumentation and not compromise anything. They it can all be there if all the places are if all the pieces are in the I right hoped, place. Yes. I always want. I mean, I would never not leave room for Linda or James as a singer yeah. of that magnitude. Yeah, and you know, I've had the good fortune to work with a lot of amazing singers, and I'm still thrilled by that mm-hmm. idea. You know, Linda's. You know. If, Every day with Linda was a pleasure. She opens her mouth and you're going to go, wow, this is going to sound great, you know, because it's Linda. And I still get, you know, working with Diana Ross or somebody like that. You you know, the first time I ever worked with Diana, you've worked on the song and you've figured things out. The moment you're actually sitting in the studio and she opens her mouth, you go, holy shit, it sounds exactly like Diana Ross. That's amazing. When was the first... All those Supremes records that you know note by note, you know. Yeah. Wow. And you worked with her up till relatively recently, right? Diana? Yeah. Um, a few years back. Yeah. But yeah, off, off and on we worked, we did various bits and pieces together, projects yeah. together. But but I love, see to me, I love great singing and I think Linda's probably the greatest singer I've ever worked with in yeah. my life. But I also love um, singers, there's something about a singer where you know immediately who it is, you know, mm-hmm. in the same way that you hear a Billie Holiday record, you know, you're going yeah. Two notes, you know, it's Billy Holiday. Yep. And Diana Ross, same thing. Natalie yep. Merchant, same thing. Mm-hmm. Linda, same thing. Yeah. Cher, same thing. Yeah. You know, different kinds of singing. Mm-hmm. But the minute Cher goes, oh, you're going to go, whoa, it's Cher. Yep. And it's, you know, um, <laughs> it's, I like that. Yeah. You know, it's it's the people who sound a little bit generic and you're not sure who it is that, yeah. that, that I find less gripping, you know. Yeah. And there's a, it seems like there's a lot more of those people nowadays <laughs> there are but you there's know? also I mean there's also some of the greatest I mean Ariana Grande is hard to yeah be. I was going to ask you I who mean, are some of the god yeah Lady Gaga is amazing Ariana yeah. Grande is amazing yeah and, you know Billie Eilish is amazing in yeah. a completely different way yeah I think she's brilliant I mean she's bloody 17 or something I know. and she's fantastic yeah so no I'm very far from being a they don't write songs like that anymore person mm-hmm. you know I think there's so much Great stuff out there. And I think a lot of people, because of the way that we were sort of, we sort of 
think about pop uh, singer-songwriters and people, pop stars, like people like, uh, you know, like Ariana Grande, is we tend to sort of think like, okay, they're, they've been polished in the studio machine, they've been trained, it's not really, they're not really that great. Right, and some of that, that's true. I mean, you hear Britney Spears live, it's disappointing compared right. to her records. Yeah. But you hear Ariana Grande live, yeah. and you're, oh my God, it's just her. It's like better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I remember seeing, somebody posted some, some stuff from, uh, she played Coachella either last I think it was a year ago, maybe. Um, and there were some clips that I saw on like Instagram or on mm. social media of her. Um, and it was mind blowing how. And it was just, there was this moment where like it was like, um, it wasn't a right. I don't know if it was not arranged or not, but it was like, it seemed like everyone was just kind of jamming, <laughs> vamping. Mm. And she was just singing, just not even words, just just kind of going with the band. And it was like, Unbelievable! That was the moment where I was like, yeah, "Holy shit, she is so she's, unbelievable!" She's got that effortless thing, yeah. and not just the ridiculous range and voice, but really a really soulful and thing, you know? able to carry a, like a, a show that big. Yeah, and like to be able to to there's so many people that have the talent, but you know can't walk out on stage and own an audience that yes. large. I mean that that on its own is so commendable, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and then the talent, and so, so when the two things come together, it's it's well. That's it's, when you see Ed Sheeran in a stadium. You yeah, know? it's nuts <laughs> with an acoustic guitar. An acoustic guitar with a two hundred dollar acoustic guitar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little one. Yeah, um, I know. It's absolutely mind boggling. I know. It, it's I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because um, you know it's easy to sort of feel like the great the great ones the people that can can do that are are are, are going away and, and no and not I, at all yeah that's I saw um, and you you work with Neil Diamond a fair amount too right I did yeah I saw yeah. him play um, at Hollywood Bowl maybe and this is probably like seven eight years ago it yeah. was right around the time when he made a record with Rick Rubin oh yeah and yeah. Um, Ben Montench uh, had played on it a bunch and mm-hmm. and. And had some tickets to the show, and so we went to go see him. And I, I had, I have no um, connection really to to him other than what I've heard on the radio, the hits. <clears throat> yeah. You know? um, and but I wanted, to, I, I love an opportunity to see someone, especially someone like that who's that iconic. Yeah. And so I, mean, I, I went, and and we had some really kind of good seats, and I I left feeling like I'd seen the greatest performance of my yes. life. Yes. You know. No, he's. I he... never experienced anything like that, and then I also kind of felt like. Sad in a way, like while these people, um, you know, aren't going to be around for forever, and like the the I've never seen anyone. I mean, I've seen like uh, like you know Bono. It can I, you see someone own them their personality mm, and mm. own a crowd mm-hmm. in a way. There are few few people who can still do it. Yeah, no, Neil's but. incredible, and and Neil is such a mixture because you know on the one hand, there's the Neil everyone makes fun of, you know, with the thing, right, and the, right. The shirt and all, yeah. and and then Neil, there's Neil the master of the stage and master of entertaining the crowd and giving mm-hmm. them what they want you know getting people excited and involved mm-hmm. and then there's the songwriter Neil right. you forget about yeah. who is brilliant yeah I mean Solitary Man and Sweet Caroline are just you know yeah great great songs yeah by any measure yeah and he kind of came from it seems like he came from a different a different uh, lineage of songwriters like he it, it doesn't seem like he listened to the Beatles much <laughs> no I don't think so I mean he was he, he was pre-Beatles of course because he was Brill Building right. but he wasn't successful Brill Building 
he he was part of it. He wrote songs for the monkeys. He wrote songs for other people, but not in the same way that Carol or Neil Sedaka. Like Tin Pan Alley. Yes. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. You know about the Brill Building and all. I've, yeah. You know, it's that bit. New York building where they were all in it. Right. That's where Carol and yeah. Jerry were in a little that right. office. You know. Right. And they wrote. They she had Carol had something like a hundred and ten chart records. Wow. You know. Um, I mean, the Carol stories, that's a whole other... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because it's so crazy that long before Tapestry, mm-hmm. you know, she wrote Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow for the Shirelles when she was 18. Wow, you know, that's right. She and her husband Jerry. And then they wrote Chains that the Beatles did, and I'm Into Something Good that Herman's Hermits did, and Crying in the Rain that the Everly Brothers did, and wow. Up on the Roof that the Drifters did. I mean, each of those songs, you know, and if, we, if you or I had written one of those songs, songs be a, it would be yeah. our calling card. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She wrote all of them. Natural Woman. Unbelievable. Um, I forget about that. And yet. then that was all before Tapestry. Wow. When she, which is one of the best-selling singer-songwriter albums of all time. Right. Yeah. And that, was, that kind of brings me to... So that would have been like early 70s, 71 or 72? What was Tapestry? Uh, I'm terrible at dates. You better look it up. I so... <laughs> but Tapestry was... I mean, well, there's a whole story... You know, I, I don't know how lengthy involvement, off-topic you want to get, but there's a whole James Carroll story is yeah. how a lot of that happened. You know, because, um, you know, I I was a Carol King fan in a songwriting hat from the moment I figured out who she was. Mm-hmm. You know, Gordon and I was singing "Crying in the Rain," and yeah. you know, and it was written that's written Greenfield and King. I didn't know who King was mm-hmm. you know, at all. And then eventually we figured out there's this amazing woman called Carol King who wrote about half the songs we love. Yeah. And, um, and so by the time I came to L.A., uh, when I moved here with James in yeah. 1970 to, to make his second album, we'd made the one album for Apple, right. I was wanted to put together a band to... to um, a little sort of core band. We knew we wanted Danny Korchma, who was, was James's friend and my friend. Mm-hmm. Danny had played with Peter and Gordon in the backup band okay. years previously, which mm-hmm. is how I met James in the first place, was mm-hmm. through Cooch. And right. and I found Russ Kunkel, mm-hmm. who hadn't done sessions before. Right. <laughs> I found him at a, a John Stewart rehearsal. and and uh, But by this time I'd heard the demos Carol had done of all those songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the songs we mentioned and and realized how, what a great pianist she was for that kind of song so when I Cooch knew her and introduced me to her here in LA and I asked her if she'd consider which was a lot to ask a famous songwriter but just coming and playing piano on the record as a studio musician and so she agreed to come over to my house and meet James and that's when they first that was the beginning of their long mm-hmm. professional relationship she played on you know all the piano on Sweet Baby James it's right. all Carol and and that's how we we met, and and it, that was before she'd begun her solo career. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was after Sweet Baby James was a hit, and we came back to do the Troubadour in 1970, the one we recreated for PBS about 10 years ago. Yeah, um, it was great. That's when uh, James said to Carol, look, if you're going to play with me in the band, why don't you do a little opening set on your own, because... Nobody will know who you are otherwise, you know. Right. I mean, just because you're just this little girl playing piano. Mm-hmm. 
play some of the songs you wrote and just tell people you wrote them and their yeah. minds will be blown <laughs> as they were and so she decided that would be a that was going to be her first ever gig she mm-hmm. was planning to make her own record mm-hmm. and become a performing artist but she hadn't yet and it was that night in the troubadour the opening night of james's week at the troubadour that we did our sound check and after sound check james and i went up to the balcony in the troubadour on the little you know little tiny balcony thing yeah and left Carol alone on the stage to do her sound check. And that's when she chose, for the purposes of a sound check, to run through a song she'd finished writing the night before. Mm-hmm. And that's when James and I sat there and heard You've Got a Friend for the first time wow. ever. And kind of went, wow, you know, yeah. what is this shit? And, and that's when James asked her if he could learn it. Wow. So he recorded it before, before Sa- she did? Virtually the same time. Same time. Um, that's what's so crazy is James said, I love that song, would you mind if I learned it? And she said, no, it'd be fine. And then we had to go back to her, you know, I think I did, and said, look, you know, this is very impertinent, but we were about to record the follow-up album, The Sweet Baby James, the one that was called Mudslide Slim when it came out. Right. And, you know, James's version of You've Got a Friend is sounding rather good. Yeah. Would you mind awfully if we recorded it too? Because I'm sure you're going to do it because you're about to do your own solo record. Mm-hmm. And which, of course, is contrary to all the, showbiz rules you don't right. have a hit song and give it away at yeah. the same time you're about to make your own yeah. first album but carol very graciously said that would be fine so pretty much within weeks of each other for sure i would say within two weeks of each other i was in crystal sound on vine street which doesn't exist anymore um recording our version of you've got a friend you know that's so fu- that's uh where we made our last two nickel creek records oh really yeah Wow. That's the one that Stevie Wonder owned, right? After... Did he? Maybe. It, was called, it was, used to be called Crystal. Oh. And then... Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, anyway. That's anyway, so funny. Yeah. So we, wow. would do, we did our version of Crystal um, with... Uh, and there's no piano on that, so Carol wasn't there. With mostly James and Gooch on acoustics. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the only the other secret weapon we had was that James's girlfriend at the time, Joni Mitchell, was there, so she sang all the background parts, which is right. why, why they sound so, right. so incredibly great. <laughs> and uh, and uh, within two weeks of that, Lou was in A and M Studios, which is very much of course still around as Hanson, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. recording Carol's version, and and they so it was on. And that's how the same song was on. Mudside Slim, our follow-up album, and Tapestry, Carol's first album, wow. at the same time. And the miracle is that it, Carol was right. It worked for everybody because yeah. we had the big hit single, mm-hmm. but of course Carol's version was a key track on Tapestry, mm-hmm. which sold a gazillion billion copies. Yeah. Wow. So, so incredible. And that has nothing rich. to do with what we were talking about whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just I love it. Um, <clears throat> when you... So when you moved, um, this switching gears a little bit. So when you moved to, you moved to Los Angeles in nineteen seventy. That one I know. You had you spent much time here before then? Yes, I mean only on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, but but uh, Gordon and I toured a lot. You know, um, yeah. So and we'd done TV shows and Shindig and this yeah. and that. So we'd been in LA off right. and on, often yeah. and. And we loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, the English tend to fall in love with LA. We, I mean, we all love New York. And I mean, first of all, as I say, you've got to remember we idolized America mm-hmm. and American music and America in general. And so, you know, because as opposed to war-ravaged bomb site, we had rationing until 1956. You know, we, wow. England was a 
you know, a different kind of place. And so I had, I had copies of Downbeat, you know, which I was a religious reader. Yeah. With the jazz clubs I would go to when I got to New York, circled yeah. when I was 15, you know. Wow. I knew I was going to get there somehow yeah. one day. So coming to the skyline, you know, arriving in New York as a, was amazing. And we first got to New York in 1964. We played at the World's Fair mm-hmm. at that Unisphere thing, you know, wow. um, which you still drive past on the way to the airport. You know, It was where the World's Fair was in wow. Flushing or somewhere. And, uh, yeah, if you look, there's this sort of rusty big old sphere but it's still there wow. and um, and that we loved being, being in New York so exciting and then of course being in New York as an English pop star in 64 and being chased by screaming teenage girls yeah. was <laughs> better than better, yeah. brilliant you know, it's incredible and 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 then I just think you remember you know coming out to LA and you know you have to remember two years earlier you know I, in sort of you know November December, I would have been bicycling home from university in London at four p.m. in the afternoon in the dark in yeah. the rain. Yeah. You know, um, back back to up. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and two years later, instead of that, same time, I'm in a rented Mustang driving down Sunset Boulevard, being recognized by beautiful women. Going to go. This is better. You know? <laughs> this, this is an improvement. <laughs> This is better. <laughs> you know, doesn't take a genius to figure it out. And That's funny because New York is still. I mean, it's 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 different enough. But I love still, New York. It still but, is dark mm. and cold. Yeah, exactly. You know? I think that's why the English fall in love with California. Is yeah. that London is a bit gloomy and dark and rainy, and uh, so suddenly you know you go wow. Yeah, you know? it's funny. I always assume that people are gonna kind of like what they're used to and, mm. and so when I you know I, I, I know a fair amount of, of, of British people a, a lot of musicians who have moved out here and yeah. I'm always surprised like you like it out here and they're like you know like uh, you know Pete Thomas the drummer I know, <laughs> you know he is yeah, I know. No. he's you know mm. um, for people listening on here he's played drums with uh, uh, Elvis Costello for oh, that's 40 right. years that's, yes and, yes uh, oh he's great yes. an amazing amazing I mean yeah. just an incredible session yes, drummer he's brilliant and, yeah. And uh, you know, every time I see him, he's wearing uh, like board shorts. Like he dresses like a surfer. <laughs> it's like so un, uh, you know, so un English. But yes. um, and then I hear about like you know Tom York surfing in Malibu a lot. You know, it's 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 a it's a I lo- I love it. But it it, it, yes. makes, it kind of makes sense that it's it's a it's a. I think so. Yes. A, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. So when you when you moved here. So you moved here to to, to make a to, to work with James. I moved here to be I'm James's manager primarily. So you the, went he went from from producing straight into managing and yes, producing. Yes, that's a really interesting move. Yeah, it it didn't seem weird to me at the time, but it, it turned out nobody else was doing that. You know, right? But really, the the motives were entirely different. I became a producer because that's something. The minute I was in a recording studio, I knew that's something I wanted to do. Yeah, and I thought it was something I could do, and I. You know, the idea of, of that I love the technology, the fact that you could, you know, hire brilliant musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do. I thought yeah. that was brilliant. Pretty and, great. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I knew right away that I, I wanted to produce records. And I consciously made a plan to, to do that. And yeah. because it's not as easy as it is now. Now, if you want to produce records, you get a laptop some ideas mm-hmm. and make a damn record, you know, yeah. and people will like it or not. Yeah. That didn't exist. Yeah. You had to have some money and an artist and a studio right. and some musicians. You couldn't 
do anything else. Yeah. So one of the people I owe a debt to is um, a guy called Paul Jones. I don't know if you remember who that is. Mm-mm. He was the uh, he's a original lead singer in Manfred Mann. Mm-hmm. Like Do Wah Diddy. Right. But yeah. she was just a walking down the street. That, yeah. that guy. Yeah. Brilliant singer. And one of the best harmonica players in the universe. Right. By right. far. Great blues harp player. Still is. Uh-huh. Plays great. Um, anyway, he'd watched me... Um, uh, on some of the Peter and Gordon sessions, I was getting more and more involved in the production, and he knew that. Mm-hmm. And he knew I wanted to produce, so he—he's the one who said he had a solo album deal. So would you produce some of my record? Yeah, jumped at the chance. And uh, first track I ever produced um, has become slightly known only for really. I mean, it was a very minor hit. We bubbled into the charts and bubbled out again. <laughs> With it was a BG song called "And the Sun Will Shine." But it was the first time I'd ever produced anything. I wanted to make sure I had a killer band. Uh-huh. So um, I hired a um, piano player called Nicky Hopkins. And yeah. And for, on bass, uh, Paul Samuel Smith. Mm-hmm. He was the bass player in the Yardbirds. Yeah. And interestingly, he went on to produce Cat Stevens records wow. and Carly Simon's records himself. He was a great friend of mine. And Jeff Beck on guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, Paul McCartney on drums yeah because wow. I love Paul's drumming yeah and I figured I'd, if I asked him to play drums he'd probably say yes you know because <laughs> he loves doing it you yeah know? and uh, so it was a, it was a great band not a big hit but that was the first record I ever produced so was that in London yes yeah and then uh, in James's case yes it was very clear from the moment I found him and signed him to Apple that I was going to produce the record I was head of A&R for the label yeah. and producer but it wasn't until we decided to leave Apple uh, when Alan Klein arrived and that whole drama began that James and I decided that I would become his manager because there was nobody else we really trusted to do right, it. Right. And I figured, you know, you, it's one of those things you learn as you go along. Yeah. And, and, you know, people sometimes ask me what the secret to being a great manager is, and it's tragically simple. It's a great artist, you know, it's, it's, which sounds silly. But look, look at it this way. I was in asked by the Hall of Fame to induct the first two managers ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And who were they? Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, right. and Andrew Oldham, the Stones manager. Right. So, you know, lesson one, want to be a good manager? Get a really good client. And, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, and I figured watching Brian Epstein do it, you know, he'd, all he'd done before right. was run a record shop. And his main attributes were an absolute belief in, in the act. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, and it helps if you're reasonably honest and not a complete jerk and all and the normal right. normal job requirements. But um, so but Brian Brian amount. was going around London saying, you know, I've got a group who are going to be bigger than Elvis, and and mm-hmm. and everyone laughed at him. Right. And, and I was basically coming to L.A. going, this this song singer songwriter, a term that didn't exist by the way. Mm-hmm. Nobody was right. a singer songwriter. You were all folk singers. If you played an acoustic right. guitar especially if you had long hair and sang, you were a folk singer. Yeah. didn't matter if you never sang a folk song in your whole life. Right. <laughs> that was the definition. When, when, did the, when, do, you, when do you remember the, the term singer-songwriter? I don't know. It's an interesting question because it definitely was not in use at that time. Right. I suppose it, it grew once the sort of Neil, James, Joni axis started to take hold. Right. Somebody, somebody at some point when... We need a name for these people because right. they, you know, because people don't. They weren't really folk singers. Because it seems like, and I've heard this from uh, 
<laughs> you mm. know, a few people that like you know I mean Beatles seem they were like one of the first like they sang their own songs and before that really huge popular bands were singing other people's songs yes right right so so the, the, so it seems it makes sense that they'd have to come up with a term for someone who what do you call someone who writes the songs and also performs them yes you know you have to come up with something because it was yes and really... of course and the funny thing is it's a new term but it's not a new profession. Yeah. I mean, Buddy Holly was a singer songwriter. Yeah. You know, so, but, you know, and, and one of the greatest. And Woody Guthrie. And, Woody, yeah. Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Well, yes, I suppose Woody Guthrie would certainly qualify as a folk singer, but you're right. I mean, he did sing some old folk songs, but he wrote most of he them. He wrote, yeah, wrote yeah. a lot. Yeah. And they became folk songs. Yeah, they became, you know. Yeah, I mean, somebody had to write those folk songs. That's right, <laughs> exactly. Their exactly. singer songwriters have existed forever, but in, in terms of like the our American pop music i guess no that's right what do you guess of course he was the second songwriter yeah yeah but yeah so um like when when james and then like uh jackson brown and mm. and and like you're saying carol and all so with that was, was that scene was that scene happening right when you when you came here and started working with james were those was like what we think of now as like the laurel canyon uh, yes yeah, sort of but was that already in play by then yes i guess so um we saw it really as the, it was the folk scene because mm -hmm. the places we were playing when when I was first trying to book James everywhere you know and yeah um, were the folk clubs mm -hmm. our, our ambition I mean pretty much all the serious cities had a folk club mm -hmm. you know it was the main point in Philadelphia the bitter end in New York the cellar door in Washington the troubadour in L A. I forget the others, but there yeah, was a bunch of them. Yeah. And that was like the circuit, and that was the yeah. folk circuit. And our ambition at the time was to sell that out, you yeah. know, because it was, which was hard to do. Yeah. You'd play a week, and if you could sell that every night, that was it. You'd made it. You were the big time. Right. And, and, so, and then when it started to go beyond that, of course, when Sweet Baby James got a grip and Fire and Rain was a hit single and all that, that's when suddenly it went crazy and we were yeah. playing theatres and eventually arenas and all that. So here, here's what I was thinking about this last night. Was it was it weird for people that so you're calling people and you're representing James mm. and you're trying you're trying to, to get him at, at you know playing as many places as possible. Yes. And but you're at the same time you're a pop star. An ex well, you know? of, yes. I mean people know who you are and you're 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 yeah, a that, name that, and you're famous. It might have helped a little was bit. Was it weird? Yeah. yeah. Um I think it helped, uh -huh. you know, to get a couple of. I mean, if I wanted to meet with Bill Graham or whoever, right. he was more likely you could get to your say foot yes. In the door a little but easier. then rapidly, you know, the, the fame and and prominence of, and desirability of James mm -hmm. eclipsed that, so it, it didn't. But right. and to the point where, it, then the next stage was when it would dawn on people that I was that Peter Asher. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Right. And to this day, you actually get people who kind of go. Oh, it's the same. Right, <laughs> they think it's <laughs> you know it's the same guy, you know, um, which which is great. You know, I love that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, and so, and you and you and so you've been a manager since then. You've been you've continued managing. Various I closed ways. the management company when I went to work for Sony. Uh, right. I was vice president of Sony for like, ten years. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, how how was that? Period? Was that? That was fun. Yeah. Um, 
was interesting. I mean, first of all, of course, you learn that all the things as a manager you thought record companies were up to, mm-hmm. they were. Yeah. And, yeah. And nothing terrible. <clears throat> but, you know, yeah. record labels always go, no, there are no, like, priorities. We have every new artist the same. Yeah. No. Meanwhile, next day you're in a meeting. If you're, in the, if you're a vice president of the record company, yeah. you know, pay a lot of attention to this guy. Yeah. No, don't worry, don't don't worry, worry about, about that one. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! The yeah. meetings that didn't happen, you know. I feel and, like as you, mm. your your career and your life is so interesting because you've been on all sides. Of yes, the I've, I've been like, lucky you, in that you've not, There isn't really any side of the music industry that you haven't been like not just privy to, like heavily involved in. And yes. that's like that's I can't think of anyone else who, who's done that. No, I it's mean. interesting. And, uh, you <laughs> mean you? And you know, I began as a child actor. Yeah, I know, that. and that's that right. Was, that you was did all that's like curious a curious career. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, all right, I don't want to take up too much more that's of your okay. day. I, I had a couple other questions that I sure. that I was curious about, um, which are. Uh, um, I, I am curious about so the the. Um, you said you met uh, Russ Conkle yes. at a John Stewart session. Yes, and it's like it seems like like Russ and uh, did you lose? Did you use uh, was Leland on those those that uh, second James record that you produced? The second the the, the Sweet Baby James one. Yeah, no, uh, people think he was by a right. process of sort of in, induction, but right. no, we found Lee and actually James found Lee. He he remembers it differently. He's always giving me credit for finding him, but I didn't. Um, on the on Sweet Baby James, we used three different bass players because mm. um, we hadn't found the killer mm-hmm. one of um, Randy Meisner played on some right. of it, right. who was terrific. Yeah. A guy called John London, I can't mm. remember where he came from, who was good, played on some of it, and Sweet and Prior and Rain actually is is all bowed bass throughout, which people right. forget. Wow. There is no electric bass and no pluck bass. It's, it's right. all that, you know, um, through the whole thing, that which was James's idea. But then after we'd finished the record, um, I do remember James going to a rehearsal of a band called Wolfgang and calling me and said he'd just met a bass player who was better than Paul McCartney and he wow. wanted him to, wanted to play with him. Wow. Um, and uh, that was Leland. So he played on, he was at the Troubadour on the gig we were doing after Sweet Baby James came out. Right. And then he played on Mudslide Slim. Right. Yeah. Did, did he play and on records subsequent to that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because I feel like, yeah, Leland and... Um, I think pretty much all the ones I produced he played on. Yeah. And then James did some records with other, some other producers and other, other musicians. Yeah. And then we reunited for JT. Yeah, the first Columbia. Record. I um I I did a tour. Well, the, uh, right after I met you, um, at the I guess that would have probably been like almost ten years ago, maybe. I I did a um, a tour with with Lyle Lovett. I was filling in for his guitar player. Mm-hmm. His wife has just had a baby, so I did like three four weeks with him, and um, and Lee and Russ were the the rhythm section. Right. And I remember thinking like, this is crazy that. You know that Lyle has got this epic rhythm section who played on all the records that he loved and listened to as yeah. a young singer songwriter, and now he's got them as his stage band, like his yeah. touring band. It's crazy, and and they they love it. And um, but I, 
I just remember sitting there. And they just sound amazing. Every yeah. soundtrack and every show, and just thinking like these two are just kind of just in del- just always yes. sort of like going to be a, a a pair, you know, yeah. a rhythmic pair. Yes. They sound. It, I go. I go back and I listen to the early recordings that they're on. Uh, I was listening to James's stuff and the, the stuff that they're on the Jackson Brown stuff, and and they sound exactly the same. Like they always just yeah, it locks. Yeah. Totally it's locked. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, Leland's incredible. He's a stunning musician, too. I mean, so, nuts. so stunning. You know, he was a child prodigy pianist. No, I didn't know that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. Um, and then he was a drum major, or whatever you call it. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's old. It's extraordinary. No, Lee is, Lee's really brilliant and odd and a genius. Kind yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about one other one other kind of a silly silly question. I, I'd heard somewhere that um, that uh, so Paul Paul had give. I don't even know if the term would be given you songs like like uh, <clears throat> the song uh, uh, "World Without Love." Yeah. He, he wrote right. Yes. So when so that was so the Beatles weren't going to record it. So he would just say you can you can have it. I guess it's a term. It would be like he gave you the song, but let, like let you record it. Um, here's what happened. I'll try and do a relatively yeah. short oh, version. However much time uh, you need. Um, you know, Paul and I'd end up living in, in our par- my parents' right. house. We, we were sharing the top floor of that. So he was there. While we he was were, dating, while he was with your sister. Yes. Yeah. So we were, shared that, that floor for about two years. And I'd heard World Without Love he, um, and told him I liked it. Yeah. And he'd explained that the Beatles weren't doing it. It was a reject. Yeah. John didn't like it. Right. Um, John would make fun of the opening line, you know. He, he wouldn't let Paul get Paul. He wouldn't let Paul get any further than "Please lock me away." Uh-huh. He'd go, "Okay, I will." The song's over. That's you know. that's so stupid. It's a great like line. It. John didn't like it. So, um, so it was a, it was an, an unfinished song. Uh-huh. Um, and then Gordon and I, quite separately, got signed up. Mm-hmm. We were in a club. Got talent scouted by yeah. the Zanar guy from EMI. Got a record deal, signed it. And he, the Norman Newell, the producer who signed us, had us in mind for something pretty folky. Mm-hmm. I think he was thinking of us as, you know, Britain's answer to the folk boom. Right. Kind of Kingston duo mm-hmm. vibe, you know, as mm-hmm. it were. And, but he, and he picked some songs that we did live that were going to be on our, part of our first session. Like we had a version of 500 Miles that he thought could be a hit. And uh-huh. And, but he also said, if you know any other good songs that you'd like to do, you know, bring them, throw bring, them into yeah. the mixture. Yeah. And that's when I went back to Paul and said, uh, is World Without Love still a reject? You mm-hmm. know, you, have you give, given to, to anybody or done anything? He said, no, I haven't finished it. No one's doing it. And I said, well, we've got a record deal. Can we give it a try? And he said, yes. So uh, all I had to do then was eventually nag him to write the bridge. Right. Um, which he finally, I mean, it was only, a, I think, a week before the session or something. I said, right. we really don't want to not do that song. <laughs> but two verses just won't quite cut it, you know. Even if we yeah. go Buddy Holly length, it's just too short. And until uh, so he went to his bedroom for, you know, an insanely short, like seven or eight minutes and came out with the, so I wait and in a while yeah. I will see my true love smile bit. Yeah. And, uh, and that was that. Yeah. So and by the time... Our first session was over. There was no doubt in anyone's mind but that that yeah. was going to be our first single. Then, 
but and that, of course, was extremely significant. Song changed my life, and mm-hmm. I have thanked Paul repeatedly. Mm-hmm. It was not long ago; it was the fiftieth anniversary. Well, actually, a while ago now, several years ago, um, of his fiftieth anniversary of when I first heard it, and and I thanked him again. And no question. But the other songs, people go, "Well, how did you get the other songs?" That were, yeah. You know, was different because there was no squeezing involved mm-hmm. because. It's slightly other topic, but back in the day, one of the things we all got asked was, as pop stars in the 60s, what are you going to do when this is all over? Mm -hmm. Because it was an absolute conviction that a pop career was like two years. Right. And then you'd go back to being a mailman or whatever, you know, (laughs) you'd come from. And, And so everyone, including the Beatles, were asked this question. And they would answer, if you look at old interviews, several examples when they go, we will be songwriters. Right. They saw songwriting as a separate profession. Right. They didn't just idolize Eddie Cochran and Elvis. They idolized Goffin and King, Lieber and Stoller, Man and Wild. They knew mm-hmm. all those teams. You know. So, in other words, when World Without Love was number one all over the world, songwriting, the rules of songwriting almost, determined you're going to make sure you write the follow-up. Right. You're not going to let somebody else sell a lot of records on your coattails. Right. So when we came back to London after our first American tour, because we'd only done that one session, we didn't have an album. Yeah. And we didn't certainly didn't have a follow-up single. Mm-hmm. And the second song, Nobody I Know, was written and finished and delivered with a bridge, right. ready to go. <laughs> right. There was no, please, can we have another, please, sir, can we have another song? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because it was like, we were, now we were up to industry standards. Right, you know? right, so, right, right. So, you had it going. That's... So, so that's kind of how that happened. And then, he wrote a couple of other songs for us, I Don't Want right. to See You Again and Woman in the Course of Our Career. And in those cases, he would just go, you know, oh, I've got a song I think would be good for you guys. Yeah. Here it is. What you just said earlier um, about uh, people saying, you know, about the Beatles saying we're going to be songwriters, that kind of mm. leads to the, the, this question I was going to ask, which is... Because it was seen as a longer-lasting career yeah. than being a pop star. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, like, it's so interesting that, that at that time, that seems like maybe the first time that someone would want to be a songwriter for... as a career, you know, or as in a, a way, so yeah, and we'd always, they and we in general, we were interested in that, you know, when, mm-hmm. when we would study American rock and roll, we would look at the little name, you know, sometimes yeah. when you bought records, they had nothing but crap on them, you couldn't, there were no useful sleeve notes or yeah. interesting facts, yeah. we wanted to know where it was recorded and how did they do it, and, <laughs> yeah. um, but we could at least see those little names in brackets, yeah. you know. Yeah. And we wanted to know who those people were. Yeah. Is it true that, that um, I, I thought I'd read or heard that, that one of the songs that you, that Peter and Gordon recorded, w- was written by Paul McCartney, but he released it, uh, he released it under a pseudonym. Yes. So that he could tell whether yes. he could sell songs based on, purely on his songwriting Correct. talent and not his name. Correct. That's the song Woman. Wow. Um, he gave us the song and said, I'd like to try an experiment if you guys wouldn't mind, you know, uh, because people were starting to say that anything with the Beatles name right. would automatically be it. So he wanted to know, like, so honestly. it came out under the name of Bernard Webb or Bernard <laughs> Webb. In right. America. And, uh, oh, sorry. How did it do? It was a big hit. Wow. It was a big hit. So experiment. Oh, it's a really good song. Good experiment. It's a great song. <laughs> no, you, it, the, the pretense fell apart. In about three weeks or so, because mm-hmm. it wasn't very well executed. I mean, all they had to do was look at who published it. And right. Kind of go, oh, <laughs> hang on. Right. So it, it wasn't it wasn't done with my. But it, it actually it was secret long enough to prove his point. But I mean, the, the average person buying a record, you know, on the care. street, they're not gonna. Yeah. I don't think so. 
No. I know. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, man. Well, um, I... But that was his request, to tr- try the pseudonym approach. I, I, I love it. And it's really interesting. It's, it's really... It's it's cool that he had that he really wanted wanted to know you know like is it, yes and I I totally understand that I mean it must have been really especially for someone who takes music that seriously and songwriting that seriously like wanting yes. to know like is it because Beatlemania must have been really confusing for you know for for them to, to figure yes, out yes like, well, and the public real, started turning you into gods right yeah. it makes, you know, life must get a little confusing I mean none of us will ever know they they they've all said you know as much as there were other people very closely involved, much more closely than me, but but nobody but the four of them will ever know what it's like to be a Beatle. Because mm-hmm. that, that's an, an unequaled level of stardom, yeah. you know, yeah. which persists. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, in, in their different ways, but, but yeah. you know, you, whether it's Ringo or Paul now, there's still that weird magic aura around yeah. them, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people still get... Speechless. Yeah, you know? I know, <laughs> man. Um, well, I've got one more question. One, one thing that um, one thing that I talk about a lot uh, that I've talked about a lot about in these episodes is uh, is, is Los. I've talked to mostly people that live in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. the, the the topic of the city has has come up um, in different ways. And I'm, I'm for you. I, I'm curious because having spent so much, have you lived here s- pretty much solid since you moved here? Did you? Yes. When yeah. I was when I was went to Sony, I we went through a lot of discussion about okay so are we going to move to new york do we live in the city do we live mm-hmm. outside but it ended up i was coming to la so often anyway mm-hmm. that we kind of didn't really move from here mm-hmm. i i got an apartment in new york and i was there a lot and going back and forth a lot mm-hmm. but we never actually made the, the proper complete family yeah. move are there are, like i'm curious are, are there th- Two parts. Are there things? What about the city? Do you, the, from the when when you moved here in the seventies and um, back back then? What about LA back then? Do you miss? And are there are there any things that you don't miss that you like about now? <laughs> that well, I'm, I miss being able to actually drive around without it <laughs> yeah. taking seventeen hours. <laughs> but yeah. um, oops, let me see. That's my line. No problem. Hello? 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 Um, okay, can I actually call back in about 30 minutes? Would that be okay? I'm just finishing an interview for a podcast. Are you all right? No, kind of Okay, well, no, thank you. No, it's, it, we're, it's either way, we're... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... Um, I, I imagine it must have been a, a totally different world in terms of driving back then. Yes, it was. Um... No, I don't know. I, I I still like LA a lot. What I've always liked about LA, and this is going to sound weird, is that I find it to be an unpretentious city. Now, I know that everyone, the rest of America thinks LA's the most pretentious city because mm-hmm. the people in it are, right. you know, are always signing up for some weird new fad or whatever it is. Right. But to my mind, it's different because LA doesn't pretend to be what it's not. You know, mm-hmm. LA's not like San Francisco going, oh, we're terribly European, mm-hmm. which they're not. Right. Or New York going, we're the center of the cultural universe, which yeah. they're not. Right. LA is just kind of going, we're LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's weird. And mm-hmm. yes, the, the, it's a bunch of pretentious people come to LA. Right. That doesn't change it. But to me, it's an unassuming city. It, the same way it doesn't really have a middle or any of that. It doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and I like the weird architecture. I like the fact that you can yeah. build a Greek 
mausoleum and a French yeah. chateau and a, and a thing that looks like a hot dog in the same block. And no, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a yeah, it, it kind of goes along with a weird what, city. What, what I what I tell people when people ask me, um, you know, people that don't live in Los Angeles, or if they're thinking about moving, and they'll ask me, I, I've always said like. LA is what you it's what you make it. And yes. and 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 in, because it's not an old city, it's not established like like New York where it's like you move to New York and you're a New Yorker and that's a thing. Um it's not like a thing to being a, a Los Angelian or Los Angeles. It's not really a defined um thing so so you you can kind of create it and and make what you want out of it. And I think I think that's part of why it fosters such a, a great artistic community because there there isn't really a limitation or an expectation. You know? I think that's right. And also, I think it's, it's as a practical matter, it makes a difference that everything happens in people's homes. Right. I mean, it's one of the, when they talk about the Laurel Canyon mm-hmm. thing, you, you've probably seen echoes in the canyon. No, but I really want to. It's really good. Yeah. Andy Slater's movie. And, and that reinforces the same point. It's all in homes. Mm-hmm. New York... People barely have a home, and if they do, right. it's only big enough to hold two people, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's different. Stuff happens in restaurants, on the street, in clubs, mm-hmm. you know. But And, of course, it does in L.A., too. This is not a rig. I mean, everyone right. hung out in the Troubadour. But at the same time, a lot of L.A. is what you make of it because it's people and making their own communities yeah. in their own houses a yeah. lot of the time. Yeah. You know, there's no hanging out in the streets in L.A., you yeah. know, um, in general. <laughs> right. And, Whereas New York, there definitely is. Mm-hmm. The streets are always buzzing with activity. Yeah. You walk around New York, you run into people you know on the street. Yeah. That's never happened in L.A. in the history of the world. <laughs> 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 if you run into them, it'll be a car crash. What, are you following me? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're, they're very different. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I've, I've, you know, and of course New York and L.A. do have this weird thing going. I mean, yeah. every time there's an earthquake, people are smiling in New York. Yeah. They don't want anyone to be hurt or dead yeah. but they're still going you know earthquake <laughs> it's also it also feels like a one way it kind of feels like a, it feels like this too with San Francisco and like people in San Francisco anytime you like I'll say I'm from LA they're like oh God, you know you exactly. like but like you talk to people here and like oh, I love San Francisco I go up there to yeah. visit and the same thing with New York like, no we in, don't put in, down New York we love New York no, exactly and uh, <laughs> exactly it's, it's, it, that tells you all you need to know actually. you're right the jealousy only goes one way you know and LA doesn't feel the need to defend itself yeah you know if somebody goes you know this about LA yeah, we know <laughs> I know. I know. I always tell people like all the stereotypes exist. Everything that you that you that you think about it, it's, right. it's there. But there's also a whole layer of stuff that that is so great that makes it all those things tolerable. You know. And also the whole theatrical world, literary world, art world in LA mm-hmm. can, can, keeps changing. You know? Yeah. Yes, New York is still in some sense the center of all those things, but but the LA version is getting very interesting in, really in each of those cases. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it's definitely, it seems very much alive and changing. And it's really great to <clears throat> to hear it from, from you, for, for someone who's been here for, for a while, and other people I know who have been camped out here for, you know, longer than I have. It gives me hope that, like, it's still it's still on a trajectory, you know? I think so, yeah. No, I I, I like LA, you know. And, uh, but it's part, for me, it's also, of course, part of the whole thing. I mean, I have to keep reminding people especially in the current climate you know i'm an immigrant and mm-hmm. proud to be so you know? right yeah and, and an immigrant not just to la but to america yeah yeah gosh crazy well um i have no intention of going back to where i came from 
<laughs> I love it. We are. No, so- I did come from somewhere, unlike the people to whom he directed those remarks. <laughs> Man, amazing. Well, thank you so much for doing this. No, it's a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Um, just so great to sit down and, and no, chat pleasure. with you. And hope uh, that comes out useful. Yeah. Oh, it's very useful. And okay. uh, we'll we'll just we'll end it here. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, that was my conversation with Peter Asher. I hope you enjoyed it. I sure had a lot of fun talking to him, in case you couldn't tell by my giddiness at times. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and as promised, here is the instrumental song Peninsula in its entirety. Please enjoy.
Ever wanted to hear from the neighbor at 9 Cloverfield Lane? Or what if I told you that Dr. Loomis's worst patient wasn't Michael Myers? I'm Adam Peacock, host of the podcast My Neighbors Are Dead. Join me each week as I talk to the lesser-known characters from your favorite horror films. Each week is an all-new, fully improvised journey into the unknown featuring friends and luminaries from the worlds of comedy, horror, and beyond. New episodes every Tuesday on Campfire Media. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Campfire.